Mark chapter 14 today. I invite you to turn to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. I invite you to stand as we read that together. To the choir master, Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, Lord, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when, no one, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Amen. Lord. Thank you for your word. Change our hearts that we would see your fulfillment at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Strange place to start when you're talking about a guy named Judas. Or is it a strange place to start? You might have noticed some familiar themes if you know the story of the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, at all. And as we go into Mark chapter 14, and we'll actually touch on all four Gospels today because there's, there's a lot to the character that is Judas, and there are a lot of things that we piece together from all four of the Gospels. One of the themes I want us to continue to keep our mind focused on is the theme of fulfillment. Because when we look at the Bible, we need to see that the entirety of Scripture points to Jesus' completed work. And all of these things that we may not be able to understand, all these characters that seem so confusing along the way, they're there for a reason. They're there to do something about the, the path of salvation. And even in the worst of circumstances, God draws together things to bring His redemption into fulfillment. That's really what we come to today is, why did this happen? And we'll get there, but I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. I won't make you stand up again. Don't worry. It'll be okay. Mark chapter 14, and there's just a couple of verses we're going to look at today. There. And we're going to look at their parallels in the other Gospels because we get some more details from that. We kind of get the bare minimum from, from Mark here. But remember last week I talked about this is one of my favorite that was one of my favorite stories this anointing of Jesus 
by this sinful woman who comes and dumps her entire dowry on his head. We see that he, uh, he, he commends her. And in, in John, we see that there was Mary named in doing that. Uh, not his mother Mary, but Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But, but here in Mark, we see this, this act of worship offered in anonymity. We don't know who does it as we read it here. We have to look other places to figure that out. That happens a lot in the Gospels. We don't necessarily get, that's why we have four Gospels, is so that we can get all these details put together. We, we again, look at it like a, a news reporter might, working for different TV stations or different news outlets, and we, we get a different perspective along the way. And when we look at it here, we, we don't get the detail of who this is. We see that this offering is given anonymously. And yet, in the midst of it, we see the plot thicken. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the chief priests and the scribes wanted to arrest him and to kill him. So they were trying to figure out how they could make it happen, but they didn't want to do it during the feast because of all their political motivations behind it. We see how well that went eventually, because that's exactly when it did happen. But we also see that in the middle of the passage, in uh, the first nine verses there, that the disciples, it says here, some, in, in other Gospels it says the disciples, and, and even in John it says Judas, they were indignant because of the waste that this money could be given to the poor instead of poured on Jesus in an act of worship. And, and remember I talked about last week that worship is never wasted. Okay, When we give to the Lord, He magnifies it to His glory. And it may not seem logical to the human mind, the things that we would offer in worship to our king. But the fact is, is that God receives it when we come to him with a pure heart. When we come to him with a desire to bring him glory. And now we see the opposite of that. Instead of this anonymous woman dumping her inheritance on Jesus' head, we see one of his closest friends betray him. One of the twelve, one of the guys who followed him around through Judah, through Judea in that day. And yeah, there is some similarity there, and we'll talk about that as we go. But it says in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is a really interesting line to, to put in the midst of here because the next verses we see, we see the Passover. We see what is the institution of the Lord's Supper. We are going to do the Lord's Supper in the, the next few weeks, and we're going to look at the implications as we get there of the Passover and what it means along the way. We talked about some of those things at Easter as well. But it never hurts to come back to it because it is something that Jesus is, commands his church to do. But it's in the midst of the greatest and it's of, of the greatest act of betrayal in human history. Judas, one of the twelve, one of his followers, one of the people he trusted, a man of the people. How do we know that? One of the reasons is because of his name. His name was Judas. And that was the the translation of the day 
of the name Judah. And that is the people that were called the Jews. Judas was a Jew. He was the, the, the picture of, of what you would expect a follower of Jesus to be. He was a Jew. I mean, he was, he was one of the, the tribe that Jesus came from. And it was a very popular name. And in, in the scriptures, we see several different Judases. And even in the disciples, we see two of them. And then we see Jesus' brother, who's named Judas. And it is translated into what we see as the book of Jude. Why did they shorten it? Because of this guy. Because Judas ruined it for everybody. <laughs> right? This name that showed you belong to this tribe, it is used some today, and but more than likely, you're going to see the name Jude used than Judas. Because this guy ruined it. He is the betrayer. We learned a lot of things, though, about Judas's uh, actions here through it. We're going to look at all these different things along the way. And one of the reasons I started out with Psalm 41 is because in verse 9, we see what is fulfilled in this act. I'm going to bounce back there really quick. Verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And if you were paying attention through reading the reading of Psalm 41, as we see it is of David, it is all about the prophecy of the betrayal of Jesus, of how it happened. And what we find is that fulfillment comes maybe in ways we don't expect it, and the ways we wouldn't have written it down ourselves. I wouldn't think that if I'm telling this story, if I'm writing this story, and then God's wisdom, he did, hallelujah, I don't know if I would have mentioned Judas at all. Think about that. We've actually done that in our culture in the fact that we hardly ever use this as a name. All that it means is the person of Judah. But now we see that it identifies as the, the betrayer. So what do we see here? Is that Judas, first of all, makes a voluntary choice to betray Jesus. In John chapter 12, we'll bounce there real quick. I think the verses can be on the screen. I, I'm not really picking the order I'm, I'm doing these in. I'm just seeing where we wrote it down. John chapter 12, and verse, uh, four, verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, this was uh, at his anointing, the, the thing that we talked about last week, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it, into it. So even the people you think sometimes, sometimes, I won't say everybody, but sometimes there's going to be people who you trust with everything that will take this place and betray. It's human. I mean, it's humanity. We're sinners. We need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. He had his own motivations, whether it was money, 
and whether it could have been political. It's been speculated along the way that Judas followed Jesus because he thought that Jesus was going to be this great political Messiah. Remember, Judah, Judea, was waiting for Rome to get out of there. And they thought, perhaps, that Jesus was this political Savior who was going to rid them of Rome once and for all. And now Jesus is doing all this strange stuff. I don't need this anymore, Judas says. I'm here to follow somebody that'll make a difference. Before we start judging Judas for that, let's think about our own motivations in worship. Because a lot of times, we'll get involved in in something that's just not necessarily for the glory of God, but that might make us look better. You know anybody who's ever done that? I have. If we're honest, we all have. Judas's motivations were off. Whatever the case may be, whether it's money, whether it's political, whatever. It says in Luke, though, that there was a very supernatural reason he did it as well. Luke chapter 22. You can bounce there if you want to. I do have it possibly on the screen, but I'm not in control of that. Um, Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 4. No, 3 through 6. That's where we are. This is the parallel passage of of what we're reading right now. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and confirmed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. A little clearer picture of what actually ended up happening, right? Instead of just a moment he could betray him, he was trying to do it, as it said earlier, Stealthily, secretly, in the absence of the crowd. In Matthew chapter 26, which is actually probably a little easier to find from where you are right now, because the Gospel of Mark isn't terribly long. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, we see one of these details that always seems to pop up when we tell this story. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thirty pieces of silver was not three hundred denarii. It was the cost of a slave. They made Jesus nothing, basically. We just need to get rid of this guy. Judas, whatever his motivations were, were unjust all along the way. But what we do find in Mark 14, as we return there, what we do find is that there is a lasting memorial for Judas as well. And it's nothing like the lasting memorial that we talked about at the end of verse 9. It's infamy. However, God uses to fulfill his purpose. We might think personally that 
we have done the worst thing ever, and we could never escape the judgment that's upon us. But God can work all things for good, even the betrayal of one of his closest friends. Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus knew that one of the twelve was there to betray him. How do we know that? I'm glad I asked. John chapter 17. Told you we were going to be jumping around quite a bit today. It's like gospel sword drill. John chapter 17, verse 12. John 17 is what's called the high priestly prayer. It's actually what I actually call the Lord's Prayer. It's how God prayed for me and you. But verse 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. What Scripture might be fulfilled? Well, I think actually this statement applies to the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay. However, we could we could specifically apply it to Psalm 41. We could do that. I wonder sometimes, and these are the things that go through my head as I read these things and I study these things. We know that Jesus laid aside some of his knowledge of eternity when he came to earth. We saw that in chapter 13. He says, I don't know that day. Only the Father knows the day of, my, of, of, of the fulfillment of my return. Right? I wonder, though, in Jesus' ministry, as he was working with the disciples, and this is totally speculation. I, I don't want to... Did, did he know it was Judas that would betray him? Because it, there is no picture through the Gospels. We do see G Judas named. Remember, they wrote the Gospels down after Jesus' life. We do see Judas named as the one who would betray him. But that's with post-knowledge, right? That's knowledge of the event. In Jesus' ministry, how did he treat Judas? says he treated him as his friend. We don't know whether or not Jesus knew that it was going to be Judas that betrayed him. But that's an interesting thought to, to put before our minds, right? But did he know? He knew somebody would. But it did not throw him off his path of fulfillment what the scriptures would bring at all. And we even see that, we're going to come back to the, the Passover and how he presents the Passover to the meal because he says someone who's eating with them would betray. Well, they're all reaching for the bread. And they're all dipping together. And we see it, this picture of this conversation with Judas and it comes to that place. And we ultimately see what Judas does 
along the way. It's just an interesting thought. I don't, I don't know, but I, th I think ultimately we need to realize any of these disciples could have been the betrayer. We know that his best friend was a denier. Right? This guy named Peter. When Jesus, or Peter tells him, I would never deny you. He says, hey, before this night's over, you've done it three times. And he does. The fact is, is that even in this place, this, this um, maybe this exalted level, we would put the disciples in, in, our, in our faith. They're just men just like we are. They're capable of the same things any of us are. And whether we would be a denier, whether we would be a betrayer, we are all sinners. For the wage of sin is death. This could have been any of us. But God brings this suffering to a place of fulfillment. He knew what the sinner needed. And nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling what he came to do. They didn't all get it. They didn't all understand it. But he came to fulfill his purposes. God's desire is that all humanity, all men it says, but all humanity would be saved. That we would come to a knowledge where we believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. That he died on the cross, shed his blood, and we sang of it earlier that cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a gory, gory picture. But there's only one thing that brings the forgiveness of sin. That is the shedding of pure and innocent blood. And the fulfillment in his death of all the prophecies and the conquering of the grave of his resurrection. Death Jesus is conquered. And he takes these confusing things as we read them, and he works them, as Romans, 5, or Romans chapter 8 would say, he works them together for good, for the, that, that we would trust in him, for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't understand all the implications of that if we get right down to it, but I do know that Jesus' desire is that we would come to faith in him. And he knew people would deny him along the way. Whether or not it was Judas, whether or not it was another one of the disciples, it was Judas as we see it fulfilled here. Can you imagine all these disciples who come back as we see in Acts, the 11 as they're called, what they thought uh, when, I mean, we see how they were written, how they wrote about him. 
about Jesus. And we see John says he's a thief. Think about a group that you so deeply trust and you think you know everybody perfectly. That one person that blew everything to bits, the next day. The mistakes that you made in dealing with that person. And the things you learned when you saw everything come back together. I can think of situations in my mind right now where all of a sudden it made sense. It wasn't that it was a happy conclusion, right? Think about what the disciples felt about Judas' betrayal. This was the model citizen up to that point. They figured it out. They figured out he was pilfering from the money money bags. They knew that he was the one that betrayed Jesus. Now, there's other things about his fulfillment and Judas' death, and we're not touching that here. We'll, we'll get to that eventually. Because Judas couldn't handle his own guilt. He took his own life. It's tragic. It's just a picture of the sinfulness of humanity. We cannot do this on our own. We can't solve the problem for ourselves. And that's really what Judas had decided to do in the midst of that anointing that he saw. He said, I can't handle this anymore. Friends, don't fall in that trap. Don't try to fix it all yourself. Because you can't. The only one capable of doing it is of whom we read and whom we worship today. That is Jesus. Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this, that somebody was going to do this. Never says he didn't love Judas. He knew it was going to happen. And see, God loves sinners. You know how I know he loves sinners? Because I was one of them. I am one of them. I'm, you know, I'm a redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but I still sin. Scriptures say God would still love me. And now, He calls us to live like Him and love the ones who would betray Him. John chapter 3. This isn't on the screen. It's just what I was thinking of. We love 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Absolutely. If you've heard me preach through this, you know what I'm going to say next. I like 17 more. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And verse 18 clears even further. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, that's why the gospel is so essential. It's because we are sending ourselves to hell. And Jesus is our rescue. On our own, one-way path. Jesus will pluck us out. Take that judgment that we might find life in his name. And I think Judas is a, an incredible, tragic example of chapter 3, verse 18 in the Gospel of John. He tried to do it himself. I can't save you. You can't save you. You can't save me. I can't save you. Jesus saves all. The Lord is gracious and merciful and offers us salvation. Will you trust Him? We can cast judgment on the son of destruction and perdition and whatever tradition words you want to throw on them. And when it gets right down to it, my sin put Jesus on the cross. He saved me. And he'll save you. Let's pray. Our God, you are good. We have this desire to save ourselves, but I pray that 